Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all here. My name is Ryan. I serve as uh, one of the interns here at Grace Downtown. Happy New Year to everybody. It's a privilege to be back up in front of you all, in front of my church family again, to be able to bring the word with you tonight. I'm thankful for this opportunity. So thank you all. So we're starting a new series tonight that we'll be going for the next month or so that we're calling A New Day, A New Life. So we think about heading into 2018, into the new year. Uh, We're going to be thinking about new life, and tonight we're going to be kicking it off by thinking together a little bit about new birth, about new birth in Christ. So I was reading a story the other day that was written by a journalist who writes for the Huffington Post, and she tells the story of a chance that she got in college to meet one of her heroes. This woman was, she was somewhat troubled when she was younger. When she was a teenager, she was very rebellious. She wasn't very happy with her home life. She acted out. But one of the ways that she found solace was actually in reading poetry. She was very bright. She was a very smart child. She loved reading poetry, especially the work of a guy by the name of Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg was a famous poet in the 20th century. He was part of the counterculture of the mid-20th century. And she loved his work. She felt like his poetry really spoke to her in ways that she could understand. She felt connected to this man. She felt like she understood him. She felt like she had a relationship with him, even though she'd never actually met him before. But then she gets a chance to meet him in her freshman year of college. He's coming to speak near her university. So of course she goes. She buys a ticket. She goes to the event. She hopes to get a chance to meet him. She's driving to the event, and she... She's daydreaming about what it will be like, and she writes this. She says, My imagination ran wild. What witty thing would I say to Mr. Ginsburg? What will I do when he asks me to drop out of college and be his full-time assistant? How could I turn down such an opportunity? She imagines this surreal, this perfect and wonderful encounter with this man who's her hero that totally validates everything that she wants to believe about him, that confirms everything that she thinks she knows about him. And so after his talk, she gets in a line of people waiting to get his autograph. Most people are getting a book signed, but she doesn't have anything like that. All she has is this little scrap of paper that was her ticket. But she hopes that she can get him to sign this for her, and it can be a memento, a a reminder of the time that she got to meet her hero, Allen Ginsberg. So she finally gets to the front of the line. She hands Mr. Ginsberg this little paper ticket. She tells him, how much his poetry has meant to her, and how much she loved reading his work and how important it was to her during so many moments of her life. This man takes a look at her ticket. He looks up at her and he says, what, you don't have anything nicer than this? And of course, she's devastated. She's saddened by this. She had all these high hopes for meeting this man and for having a wonderful encounter with him. And this is not how she expected it to go. She thinks the world of this man, when she finally gets the chance to meet him, he's rude to her. He kind of embarrasses her in front of other people. And this is a pretty common storyline, right? There are a lot of stories out there of people who get a chance to meet a celebrity or they get a chance to meet their hero, and the encounter does not go as they would have imagined it. If you're like me, maybe you've imagined yourself having a conversation with someone famous and you're totally calm in that moment. You only present the best sides of yourself. They're impressed by what a wonderful person you are. They're warm and they're encouraging. 
and they're appreciative. But in reality, it never really turns out like that, right? Sometimes the person turns out to be a jerk. Sometimes they just turn out to be bizarre or have an odd personality. Sometimes they're just nothing like what you would expect them to be from what you know about them. And Nicodemus can relate to these storylines. John doesn't exactly tell us what Nicodemus was thinking when he came to see Jesus, but this is certainly not what he was expecting. This encounter is nothing like the conversations that were kind of playing through his mind as he walked to meet Jesus for the first time. It's nothing like what he expected it to be. He comes to this wise teacher who's been doing all of these incredible things in the community, who's making a name for himself, and he finds himself totally confused. He probably walks away totally confused. Like, what just happened? You want me to be born again, Jesus? What does that even mean? Jesus doesn't tell him what he wants to hear. He offers him something radical, something that's totally different than what Nicodemus is expecting, something that's totally different than what Nicodemus thinks he needs from this man. It's something radical. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. First, let's, let's set the scene here. So we're pretty early in the Gospel of John. Jesus has already created a stir. He has turned water into wine at Canaan, at the wedding at Cana. He's gone into the temple and he's created a stir by, by kicking out all of these merchants who were abusing their place in the temple, right, by, by selling things and making a profit off of people who were just coming there to worship. And Jesus makes a big scene with them. He kicks them out. He does other signs and other wonders in front of the people. He's making a name for himself. He's, he's becoming famous. He's gaining a lot of attention, especially uh, from the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious rulers of the Jewish people during this time. They were experts in the law of God. They took their religion very seriously. They were passionate about honoring God's law. They were passionate about following God's law, so much so that they actually turned the law into a burden for most of the people during this time. They turned the good gift of God's law into something that ended up oppressing a lot of the people. And they're kind of a, they're a common opponent of Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? There are a lot of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout all four Gospels. But this situation that we read about tonight is a little different than most others. Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. Yeah, he's one of these religious leaders. But instead of confronting Jesus while he's teaching or while he's out among the people, he comes to him at night. He comes to him in secret. So Nicodemus is, he's a powerful man. The Pharisees were powerful people. He's a man of standing in his community. But he comes to Jesus in the quiet of the night when everybody has gone to bed, when the crowds that are normally surrounding him have gone, that's the time he chooses to come and meet Jesus. And he's not like most of the other Pharisees who reject Jesus or, or see him as some kind of a threat. No, Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus is good. He recognizes that he's a man of God, that he is sent from God. He says here, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs unless he is a man of God. And he's right. 
He sees the signs that Jesus does, and he draws the right conclusion here, right? That this man is someone from God. He must be sent from God. So he's got it right, or at least he's on the right track, right? But then Jesus gives him a a pretty puzzling response. He cuts right to the chase. There are no pleasantries. He doesn't thank Nicodemus for his kind words about him. No, actually, right before this encounter, John tells us that Jesus knows people, that he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus understands human nature. He understands people. As God in the flesh, as the Word made flesh that we spent some time thinking about leading up to to Christmas, as the Word made flesh, he can understand what is in the heart of people. And he sees what's in Nicodemus' heart, and he sees that something is lacking here. Something is lacking in this man, Nicodemus. Now, maybe the reason he came at night is because he's afraid. Maybe he's afraid of people. Maybe he's afraid of what the Pharisees and the other religious leaders would think of him, right? Nicodemus, why are you talking to that carpenter, Jesus? That man is no friend of ours. Did you see what he did in the temple? He destroyed it. Do you want him to destroy us too? Or maybe on the other hand, he's just embarrassed. He's embarrassed to talk to Jesus, and he's embarrassed about what the Pharisees might think of him. Like that they'll make fun of him for thinking highly of this lunatic who destroyed the temple and kicked all the people out of the temple. He might think that his peers think that he's wasting his time with this man. Jesus sees something that is lacking in Nicodemus, and he challenges him. Anyone who wants to see the kingdom of God, anyone who wants to know God, must be born again. That's Jesus' response. That's his response to a man who comes to him and praises him for being a great teacher. And Nicodemus is, he's confused, and he's understandably confused, right? We can give him a little bit of a break here. This idea of being born again is pretty common Christian lingo for us in this day and age, but this is an idea that would have been very foreign to Nicodemus, something that doesn't really make any sense to him. He's probably imagining something like that classic uh, Will Ferrell SNL sketch, right? If you watched Saturday Night Live in the early 2000s, you probably remember that sketch where there's a woman and her husband in a hospital room and she's just given birth to her first baby and the doctor presents her with her baby for the first time and it turns out that it's a 37-year-old man played by Will Ferrell who sort of acts like a baby but he's also got this attitude and he's got a full vocabulary and the parents are confused like how can this happen and the doctor's saying you know it's it's rare but sometimes it does happen it's it's a ridiculous scenario, and it's, <laughs> it's totally ridiculous, and that's kind of the point. That's, that's why it's funny, and that's about what Nicodemus must be imagining here, something ridiculous like that. He comes to Jesus, this wise teacher. He goes to talk to him, and this man kind of spits out nonsense, things that don't really make sense to him. Jesus is definitely not what he expects. This interaction is not what Nicodemus had in mind when he went to talk to this teacher from God. And I have to warn you, 
If you've never met Jesus before, he might not be what you expect. He surprises people all the time. He had done it throughout the first three chapters of John, and he does it again here. Have you ever played that game or done that icebreaker question uh, where if you had one chance to, to meet one person from history and to have a conversation with them, who would it be? When I've played that game in the past, one of the most common answers is always Jesus, right? Even people who aren't Christians are, for some reason, really curious about this man and want to have a conversation with him. But as I read through passages like this one, I don't know, that idea makes me a little nervous. I'm not sure Jesus is going to tell me what I want to hear. Or think about the rich young ruler in Mark 10, right, who comes to Jesus and asks the perfect question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's absolutely the right question. And Jesus responds, do you know the commandments? The young man says, yes, I know all the commandments. I've kept them all since I was a child. Jesus says, great, okay. Now, one more thing I need from you. I need you to give away everything that you have to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young man goes away dejected. He goes away devastated. He's devastated because he can't bear to give away everything he has. Jesus doesn't give him the answer he wanted to hear. Jesus has this magnificent talent for pointing out what's really in people's hearts. He understands human nature. He understands people. He understands us. The interesting thing about Jesus' initial response to Nicodemus here in verse 3 is that he doesn't say, Nicodemus, you must be born again. No, he says, unless anyone is born again, anyone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. No one can know God unless they are born again. This is true for everyone. This is true for Nicodemus, and it's true for you and me tonight also. Even spiritual people need help. Even people who know the Bible, like Nicodemus undoubtedly did, need help. Even people who seem like they have everything put together need help. A lot of times in those stories about meeting celebrities or meeting your hero, the story turns on the fact that the person you are meeting doesn't live up to who you thought they would be, right? But the issue with meeting Jesus isn't that he disappoints, it's that he knows what's in your heart. And if he sees any impurity in your heart, if he sees any selfishness, if he sees that anything is lacking, if he sees that you love money in an unhealthy way, or that you love your career in an unhealthy way, or that you're maybe a little embarrassed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or that you idolize beauty or status or anything and elevate it above the position that it should, he might just convict you of that. He might convict you of it because he wants you to be rid of it. That's the point. That's the thing with the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus doesn't point out his love of money to remind him how bad he is and to make him feel guilty. No, Mark tells us that Jesus loved him, and that's why he did it. Before he asked the young man to give up everything he has, it says that Jesus loved him. For Nicodemus, he just can't understand and can't accept 
what Jesus is teaching him. He recognizes that Jesus is a teacher, but he can't understand that what Jesus wants from him is a transformation. He can't understand that even he, a religious leader, even he, a powerful Pharisee who knows the Bible, needs a new beginning. Jesus wants Nicodemus to be born again. So what does he mean by being born again? We're going to briefly look at three things tonight, that it's spiritual, that it's radical, and that it's completely and totally reliant on Christ. So first, this is a spiritual rebirth. It's a spiritual renewal. This phrase that gets translated most often as born again in our Bibles actually could also mean born from above. And the Greek word that John uses here, it sort of actually deliberately refers to both, right? It's at the same time being born again and being born from above. So it's not something that we can work really hard to accomplish in ourselves. It has to come from above. Look at what Jesus says in verses 6 and 7. You must be born of water and spirit. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So here we see the first issue with Nicodemus and his lack of understanding. When he first hears Jesus tell him that he must be born again, he can't get over the physical impossibility of it, right? He can't get over the limits of the physical human world that he's putting on this event. When he first hears Jesus tell him he must be born again, he just doesn't understand it because he doesn't understand that this is a spiritual reality. It's ridiculous for Nicodemus because he's misunderstanding what Jesus is asking of him. And because it is a spiritual renewal, there is an element of mystery involved. It's almost incomprehensible when you think about it. The Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated. He's not boxed in by Nicodemus's limited understanding of what can and cannot be. Jesus compares this spiritual rebirth to the wind, right? It's invisible and it's mysterious, but we see and we feel it. And we see and we feel its effects, even if we may not know exactly where it's coming from. Those who are born of the Spirit might live in ways that don't make sense to people outside of the church. The spiritual renewal is compared with the Spirit sweeping you up in the wind. For those looking on, they don't know where that wind comes from or where it goes. The spiritual renewal can't always be recognized from the outside. It may be as mysterious for those who are looking on as it is for Nicodemus in this moment as he thinks about it. So, this is a spiritual renewal. And second, being born again is radical. It's radical. It's so radical that it's like you are a whole new person who has been born again a second time. There is a distinct difference between the person who you are after you have been born again and the person who you are apart from Christ. There's a distinct difference. Titus 3 talks about the power of spiritual regeneration to change foolish, quarrelsome, angry people into people devoted to good works. Spiritual rebirth has impact. It has real impact. It begins to change the way you act towards people. It begins to change the way that you think about people. 
begins to change the way that you make decisions. The sin that we struggle with begins to lose its power. And for some of us, you know, we can't really point to this one exact concrete moment where we said, yes, that's the moment that I was converted. That's the moment that Jesus came into my life. For some of us, it happens over the course of time. But still, it is a radical difference. That's the point that Jesus is making here. There's a radical difference between who you are in Christ and who you are apart from Christ. That brings us to the third quality of what it means to be born again. It's all about Christ. It's all about who Jesus is, about what he has done, and about what that does for you. You can't be born by yourself. This is not an act of human will. This is not something where you can just exert as much effort as possible and make it happen for yourself. Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a teacher. He's looking for an assist. He's looking for a boost. He's looking for just a little bit of help from Jesus. But he can't seem to grasp that Jesus wants him to be transformed. Jesus wants him to be transformed, and Jesus wants to be the one to do it, not Nicodemus. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You're not believing what I'm teaching you, Nicodemus, and everyone. You're not believing what I'm testifying to you about. The point is, is that I'm not just a teacher. I'm a savior. Jesus is a savior. He wants to rescue you. Numbers 21 that we read earlier recounts the story of the Israelites who have recently been freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt who are now wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land and after grumbling and rebelling against the God who freed them from slavery, they're punished with all these snakes in their camp, right? And people are dying. They're being bitten by these poisonous snakes. But after they, they pray to God and repent, God tells Moses to, to build this snake and to put it on a pole in the middle of the camp so that when anybody gets bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look on that pole and be saved. All they have to do is look at that snake on that pole and be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants to be that snake on a pole that all we have to look to is him in order to be saved. He is lifted up so that all we have to do is look to him. Because the truth is, the reason that we need to be reborn in the first place is that if we're left to ourselves, we are dead in our sin. If we're left to ourselves, spiritually, we are no better than an Israelite who's just been bitten by a poisonous snake and is basically on their deathbed. We are impatient and we grumble like the Israelites, or maybe we are afraid and ashamed like Nicodemus, or maybe we love money. Whatever it is, we are dead in our sin. And those who wish to see the kingdom of God, those who wish to know God in the way that he wants to be known, must be saved from their sin. We must be saved from that sin. And we can't do it on our own. That's why Jesus came to earth. Jesus is a wonderful teacher. He's a wise teacher, and we'd better listen to the things he's teaching us. But he's more than that, and he is a savior. 
And not only that, he's the only Savior. No one can be born again except from the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the only one who has both ascended into heaven and come down to earth in the flesh. This is a huge claim that he makes about himself. It's a massive claim. He is the only bridge, the only way between heaven and earth. The only bridge between God and people is Jesus Christ. If you want to know God in heaven, listen to Jesus on earth. He came down from heaven to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's why the one whose rightful home is in heaven would stoop down, would come among us, would dwell as a person, would be tempted in every way that we were tempted, but would live a life free from sin. And as the serpent was lifted up on a pole for the Israelites, Jesus was lifted up on a cross where he suffered, where he died, where he took the penalty for all of our sin. Christ's death provides sinful people with a gift of new birth, with a gift of new life. That's what his death does for us. And he does it out of love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved for us while we were still sinners. You don't give your life for something that you don't care about. It just doesn't happen. Our passage here tonight ends in verse 15, but it's followed by what's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love for us is so great that he would send his only Son, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, Christ our Savior, to death in the grave so that we might have new life in him. Because Jesus doesn't stay in the grave. He is not relegated to the realm of the dead when he dies. God raised him from the dead. And as the one who conquered death, Jesus the Savior, then ascends into his rightful home in heaven, where he still sits at the right hand of God. And through the Holy Spirit, we can be united to him. This is the beauty of spiritual rebirth that Jesus is offering to Nicodemus, that he offers to every one of us. Through the Holy Spirit, we can actually be united to that Savior. Because we are united to him, he can always be at work in those who believe in him. He gives access to heaven over that bridge that only he can create, and he uses it to work in us, to work on our hearts. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You'll finish it. If you're a follower of Christ, when you were born again, when you were born from above in the Spirit, God began working on those parts of your heart that were too much in love with money or your career or status or whatever it might be, and he will not rest. He will not rest until you are free from those sins. He will not rest until you are free from all of your weakness. He is working to renew you already in this life by God's grace. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, so shall you be raised to life on your final, full, and complete renewal to life with him in eternity.
One of the great things about the story of Nicodemus here in the Gospel of John is that Nicodemus is actually a recurring character throughout the book. He comes back a couple times later in the story. In John chapter 7, this man who came to Jesus, probably out of fear or shame, actually sticks up for Jesus in front of the Pharisees. He sticks up for him. And then later on, when Jesus dies, and Nicodemus is still there, and he's still around, and he makes sure that Jesus gets a proper burial, he leaves this conversation probably pretty confused, and like he's not really sure what Jesus is trying to tell him. But it looks like that rebirth happens for Nicodemus. That rebirth happens for him. If you're here tonight and you haven't met Jesus, he might not be the man you expect him to be. He might not be the man you thought you would encounter at a worship service at a church. If you come to him like Nicodemus did, seeing that there is, there's clearly some good in him, there's some wisdom in him, maybe he even actually performed some of the miracles the Bible says that he did, and you're looking for some help, if you're looking for some wise teachings, if you're looking for a boost, if you're looking for something to just help you pull up your own bootstraps and get your life back together and get things back on track, Jesus offers you more than that. If that's what you're looking for, that is too little for what Jesus wants to do. He wants to give you more than that. He wants to free you from the sin that dwells in you, from the parts of your heart that are broken or self-centered. One of the most common things that Jesus teaches people, actually that he commands of people throughout the accounts of his life in the New Testament, is to repent. He tells people over and over again to repent, and not because he's sadistic, not because he likes making people feel bad about themselves. He wants people to repent because he wants to renew them. He wants to make them new. He wants to give them new life, and that can't happen until repentance happens, until confession happens. He wants to renew you, and it might not look like what you thought it would, it might look different, but he doesn't want to just fix your life. He wants to give you new life. He wants to give you new life. And if you're here tonight and you've been born again, you've been born from above, you are united to your Savior in heaven, I'd ask you to, to think about your baptism. So for many of us, for myself included, that happened when we were infants. That happened when we were babies, and maybe we have some photos, or maybe we still have the certificate, or maybe we have a video, but we don't really remember any of it for ourselves, right? But that's the beauty of it, and that's the point of it. If you were united to Christ before you even knew the name of Jesus, he chose you. Before you knew him, he claimed you, and he began working in you, and he began leading you to that new birth that you've experienced in this life. And he is still working in you every day, relentlessly, that you would become more like him. More like the perfect man. More like the man who can overcome any temptation. The man who is free from sin. And if you feel like maybe you still struggle with some things 
in your heart. You feel like maybe that renewal isn't quite as far along as you'd hoped. Maybe the excitement of a conversion to Christ has worn off and you feel a little bit lost or like you're at a dead end, maybe. God is still working through you. God is still working through you. If you've been united to Christ, he will not let you go. The sin that you struggle with, the circumstances that you struggle with in this life, he still cares about those. Don't ignore them. Go before him in prayer. Bring things to him over and over again. Confess freely before him. He wants to hear that confession, but he will continue to work in him, in you, even if it doesn't feel like it. He will continue to work in you, even when it doesn't feel like he's doing that much. And he will work in you from this day until that final day when you are raised again like he was to experience the ultimate and final new life that we just get a taste of in this world. Being reborn is not the end. It's not the end. It's not the final goal. It's just the beginning. And just as God, through the Spirit, has brought you into union with Christ, he will surely finish that work. He will finish what he started. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new birth that you offer to us, that you offer to all of us here tonight. We pray that, that this truth would become alive in our hearts and that it would cause us to love you more as our Savior. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.